with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm TJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's story is a tale of revenge so frightening it might scare you stiff. Please enjoy Half Dead. Once upon a time, I had a love that burned bright. I had a love that cut away the rot in my soul, found what was good there, and tended to it. I had a love I thought would last forever, even if that forever had to be spent in secret. But four months ago, Evan McDougall took that love away from me. And now, all I have is revenge. It was a sunny morning on the day of the hearing, which is strange. October in this part of the South is usually full of rain. It should be storming, I thought as I got dressed. The sky should be screaming like I wanted to scream. Instead, the only screaming came from the grackles crowding the power lines around downtown. The good weather meant there were more than a few onlookers crowding the courtroom steps in addition to the few local news teams on the scene. The story wasn't splashy enough to go viral, but in our small college town, the son of a dean possibly facing murder charges made big waves. You couldn't step into a coffee shop or sit in office hours or buy tampons at the CVS without hearing the name Evan McDougall, accompanied by a declaration of shock or outrage. The last time a story this big hit the town was when a Category 4 storm took the top off half of the city in 2003. I remember hiding that night with my little sister, two girls in a bathtub, a mattress flopped over us, breathing in her too sweet cereal breath and wondering if we were going to die. I promised God that if he let me and my sister and my parents and my cat live through this, that I would try to be a good person for as long as I lived. And growing up, I mostly kept that promise. That is, until Evan McDougall came into my life. Here's what I know to be true about the night that Cassie died, pieced together over several months while I waited to see if there would be charges. The party was at an apartment a few blocks from campus. I'd been there before, in that vodka-soaked three-bedroom bro house, where it seemed like they were always partying. It was there that I'd met Cassie, nearly a year ago. That night, the night that it happened, I didn't go. Cassie went alone. According to everyone I spoke to, it was like any other party. They played flip cup and waterfalls and thunderstruck. They argued about which professors were the dumbest or the best looking, which specialties would make the most money after residency. McDougall reigned over it all, ushering in new partygoers with a grin and a shot of Smirnoff. Lena Sue, a second year, remembered him being in a good mood, at one point pulling her down onto his lap for an enthusiastic, if a bit slurred, rendition of Rihanna's Umbrella. Another witness said he got the whole party singing along with him, even though he couldn't remember any lyrics past Brella, Ella, Ella, A. And still another person told me that they didn't remember the singing at all, and that McDougal spent most of the night in the corner on his phone. The one thing everyone seemed to agree on was that McDougal was already drunk when everyone else was still getting started. A class in surgery was required for all first-year medical students, a grisly rite of passage, a line in the sand. Can you cut into another human body? Every first-year believed that they could. Many found that when the time came and the scalpel was placed in their hand, something ancient and animal stopped them from pushing it through. 
I had passed that gauntlet a couple of years ago, and now I assisted the professor in the anatomy lab, dissecting cadavers. The professors would put a square cloth over the cadaver's face to make it easier on the students. I had never had any problems with the surgical lab. The muscles and tissues on the slab had nothing to do with the moving parts of my own body. They were dead. I was alive. They were serving a purpose by teaching, just as I was by learning. Cassie didn't like it. She confessed to me one night over a glass of wine in my apartment. It wasn't the body, she explained. It was the smell. I'd almost rather that they smelled like rot, she confessed between gulps. The formaldehyde just sticks in my nose all day. And then I just keep thinking about the lab and... She shuddered. The next day, I bought some odor neutralizing gels off of Amazon and had them sent to her house. It was a little past midnight when McDougal began to get antsy, according to the handful of party attendees I was able to question over the past couple of months. I felt like I was entering a minefield every time I asked someone about it. Not just because of what I was planning, but because, well, who was I to be asking about Cassie in the first place? When you keep a secret as big and as dangerous as the one we shared, you learn to anticipate every potential threat. What if I asked the wrong person the wrong question and it got back to McDougal? If I was going to pull off this plan, I had to move invisibly through the story, no more than a curious acquaintance who wanted the grisly details. Not long after Cassie's death, when the inquiry was starting to heat up, I was at a study session turned apartment rager with some first years that I knew had been at the party that night. I started by knocking back two shots of Jaeger, both to drown out my memories of Cassie and to give me time to find and approach a promising target. It turned out that night I didn't even need to scout. Within seconds of finishing my second shot, a bleary-eyed student dropped down next to me on the couch and asked me if I had heard about everything that's going on. Even though this first source was drunk, his memory of that party was clear. Not just because of the gravity of what had happened, but because Evan McDougall had the kind of presence you could feel in a room moments before he entered and hours after he'd left. I'd seen it myself in the parties that I ran into him. His dark brown hair curled up around a sharp angular face that was set with sparkling emerald eyes and a strong sculpted chin. He didn't smile. He leered. He didn't walk. He swaggered. At six foot five, McDougal loomed over his fellow medical students, his body long and taut like a recurved bow, full of potential energy, ready to explode at a moment's notice. By my new friend's account, McDougal wandered between the different clusters of friends at the party, looking for trouble. He even claimed to have seen McDougal stick his finger in somebody's chest and threaten to throw him out, but when this person got in McDougal's face, he backed off. This detail stuck with me more than most. It reeked of the kind of schoolboys I couldn't stand growing up. The kind of bullies who only targeted those that they knew wouldn't or couldn't fight back. Cowardice masquerading as strength. After antagonizing half the party with no luck, McDougal had made his way out onto the deck where several people were hanging out, chatting and passing around a joint. McDougal descended on them, calling them losers and burnouts and throwing their joint over the edge of the balcony. This caused a few people to stand up and get in McDougal's face, which of course was exactly what he wanted. Only one person was sitting alone, away from it all, tapping away in the glow of their phone screen. Cassie. My Cassie. Sweet like the first bursting berries of spring. Too sweet for this world. I would have been happy to take our relationship public to cut out anyone and everyone who even hinted at having a problem with us, but for Cassie's sake I didn't. 
It was her parents, she explained, and the other students whose parents went to the same fundraisers and openings, who sat on the same boards, held the same season tickets to operas they wouldn't attend. They paid for her to go to medical school, she told me through tears, after it was clear that our relationship was going to be more than a few drunken hookups. Just a few more years, and then she'd be done with school, and then there wouldn't be anything else they could ever hold over her head. Just until graduation, she begged me, and I agreed. After all, what was a couple of years of secrecy when we had the rest of our lives to be together? If only I'd known that the end of Cassie's life was hurtling straight towards us at breakneck speed. The drunk kid couldn't quite remember, but I feel sure that Cassie wasn't the first to confront MacDougall, even if her conscience would have told her to. I'm sure one or two of the other people had tried to calm him down, and that only riled him up. And once the screaming started, only then did Cassie, the peacemaker, the middle child of her family, step in. I'm sure she'd only wanted to calm the drunken, shouting man. I'm sure she asked something friendly and disarming like, Whoa there, you looking for someone, big guy? And I'm sure that MacDougall turned to her and smiled. No, that's not right. He didn't smile. He leered. One of Cassie's friends filled in the rest of the story about what happened that night. I didn't have the courage to approach her outright. When the news announced the grand jury's findings that MacDougall's actions didn't rise to the level of indictment in Cassie's death, a few of the students who knew her met up for a semi-spontaneous memorial at Griffey's, the closest bar to campus. It was part spectacle, part wake, part unburdening of the soul. I picked a spot at the very back table near Cassie's roommates and braced myself to hear the worst of it. After Cassie had intervened, McDougal had tried every trick in the book to goad Cassie into a fight. He tried to grab her phone, then her arm, then her waist. When she pushed him away, he taunted her, calling her a frigid bitch and a dyke and an ugly cow. She only laughed, people said, and then turned back to her phone, muttering that he was so drunk she doubted anything below the belt was working anyway. Needless to say, this didn't go over well with McDougal. Cassie never saw it coming. No longer able to keep up the charade of ghoulish curiosity, I simply plastered a mask of shock over my face and left it frozen there as I listened to the rest of the story. The storyteller, whose voice was thick with both grief and drink, made it clear that she wasn't sure exactly what happened. All she knew is that she saw Cassie and McDougal on the balcony. McDougal bent over Cassie, his hands on her body. From where this witness stood, it almost looked like Cassie and McDougal were kissing. She could only see the back of McDougal's head as it was lowered towards Cassie. The next thing she knew, Cassie was screaming and tumbled backwards over the railing. Whether it was an accident or he pushed her, it was impossible to say. Others rushed to the balcony, as did this woman, and peered down to see Cassie's lifeless body staring back up at them from four stories below. Her arms and legs were arranged around her in a grotesque dance, her eyes wide open, her mouth frozen in a grimace. After Cassie fell, she said MacDougall started swinging at the air, his eyes wild and unseeing. Two men moved to subdue him, but he was so much bigger, so much stronger, that he broke one man's nose before a larger group was finally able to wrestle him to the ground. In my mind's eye, I can see Cassie fall. I smell MacDougall's rancid breath on her as he leans over her, pushing her so far back that she plunges. I see the look in her eyes 
as she knows she's going to die. If only I had been there that night. I don't know if I could have saved her from him, but maybe if nothing else, I could have run to her as she lay in the cold and held her one last time. Instead, I was sleeping soundly that night and worked diligently all the next day as I always did. I didn't know Cassie was dead until I got a group text about it from my study group. After all, why would anyone think to tell me? As far as anyone knew, we weren't even friends. Silly me. I thought MacDougall would have the decency to sit out the social calendar for at least the rest of the semester. In fact, he was at a party the very next weekend. I heard about it from a friend during labs. Some people treated him icily for sure, but most didn't. I understood, and I didn't blame them. It's easier to move on when it's not the love of your life buried in the ground. Knowing he was out and about was all that was necessary for me to set the right trap and let McDougal walk himself into it. The opportunity came knocking a few weeks later, when the semi-annual hook-up-before-you-fail party ushered in midterms. The party was happening on a Tuesday night at a house at the edge of campus, and students from every year, McDougal included, were expected to attend. I skipped out on my last study session in order to get ready, putting more effort into my appearance than I had in months. I got dressed, making sure I had everything I needed tucked into my inner jacket pockets. Then, as the sky turned bruise-colored and the street lamps flickered to life, I left my apartment and crossed campus to the party. I didn't seek out McDougal immediately. I thought that would be too obvious. Instead, I kept tabs on him after he arrived, noting how many drinks that he'd finished, who he was talking to, and when and where he went off to be alone. Finally, about two hours in, I made my approach. He was climbing the stairs. I positioned myself at the stop, a drink clutched in my hand. He slid past me. I turned and bam, we collided and my drink went flying. Well, now you have to grab me a new one, I cooed, pointing to the line forming around the keg in the kitchen below, or at least be my escort. It was the oldest trick in the book, so of course McDougal fell for it. So, I heard you've had a hard semester, I began, figuring it was better to get the obvious out of the way. We were standing next to an abandoned beer pong table far enough away from the cluster of partiers not to be overheard. That's an understatement, he said, taking a long sip. Well, at least it's over now, I offered. He eyed me over the rim of his solo cup. Were you like her friend or something? Shit, I thought. Wrong move. I gave him the most brainless smile I could manage and touched his arm with my free hand. No, I mean, I had classes with her, but she was always so weird. Yeah, she was a freak, and her family turned out to be worse. But you know, lucky for me, the courts were on my side. I smiled and nodded, reaching out to put my hand on his chest. I'm so glad for you. He looked down at me with a look that every woman knows. He was in. He wanted what I hoped he wanted. While I waited for the right moment, my fingers fiddled with the vials in my jacket pocket, turning them back and forth, feeling the heavy liquid slosh delightfully in their amber bottles. This cocktail of drugs was a result of weeks worth of study, experimentation, and risk, which in truth started long before the grand jury made their pronouncement. Even though the chance to cut open a living person will still be years away in my medical training, I knew enough about surgery to know that modern anesthetics wouldn't work for what I was planning. For one, they were too effective. 
The type of anesthesia administered in today's ORs paralyzed not only your skeletal muscles, like your arms and legs, but also your diaphragm, which left you unable to breathe on your own. While I'm sure that suffocating to death entombed in your own frozen body was an unpleasant way to go, it wasn't exactly what I had in mind for Evan McDougall. I needed something that would keep him still and silent, but awake and alive for hours. The answer came, ironically, from the one seminar that I had had with McDougall. Cultural Disparities was a required course for all first years, and focused on the socio-cultural history of medicine, or in other words, how we've treated patients differently because of things like race, gender, and ability, and how we should stop doing that, preferably immediately. The class was taught by everyone's favorite eccentric professor, who insisted we call him Dr. Marty. Dr. Marty was known for going on long tangents about his experiences in public practice, how he gradually came to distrust most aspects of Western medicine, and how many ailments could truly be cured with acupuncture. A lot of students considered him a quack, but I always enjoyed his classes. So much of med school had turned out to be an echo chamber of self-importance. It was easy to see how many doctors came to view themselves as mythic protectors of an infallible science. It was nice to have a skeptic in the mix to remind us we were still human. It happened during one of Dr. Marty's lectures on the history of pain bias, how historically doctors have relied on a subjective pain scale provided by patients, and this has led inevitably to bias. We are likely to over-treat pain in patients who look like us, and under-medicate or even disbelieve cries of pain in patients that we don't identify with. In truth, Dr. Marty's description of this bias was a lot longer and more gruesome, but that was the takeaway. To illustrate this point, he produced a tiny amber bottle. Before modern anesthetics, surgeons in the old days relied on ethers, the ancestors of what you kids might call laughing gas. The benefit of most inhaled anesthetics over the modern IV form is, of course, the need to intubate the patient, leading to higher risk of infection, complications, and the like. There's also the risk of over or under medicating the patient, again due in part to bias on the part of the practitioner. Inhalants are, of course, more of an art than science, and due to the practitioner's ability to adjust doses on the fly without regards to the patient's airway, the surgeon can have a more individualized result. I raised my hand and willed my voice to sound only casually interested. Well, why did we stop using these if it's easier to individualize? Ah, my dear, Dr. Marty replied with a smile, because modern medicine is a factory line, not an artisanal practice. There are some instances, however, when we still use inhalants, particularly when controlling a patient's breathing is a factor. Dental procedures, for example. A couple of years later, I remembered that exchange, and I knew what I had to do. It was actually pretty easy to steal the necessary chemicals to make the anesthetics. Since they weren't involved with anything that would get a person high, they didn't get the lock and key treatment at the lab. I spent the next few weeks experimenting with different ratios and administrations and testing the results on my own body. I had to guess that McDougall weighed at least 50 pounds more than me, meaning I was skating as close to the edge as I could without stopping my own heart, and even then I was still guessing on the dosage. In doing so, I achieved several sensory horrors, pins and needles that pricked my legs for days, weakness that made my fine cuts and stitches a chore in lab before I finally produced a set of cocktails, each bumped up 25% from what had done the job on my body that I was satisfied with. 
while I lay in my bed all those nights, locked inside my frozen body, testing the limits of the drugs, I occupied my brain with dark thoughts of getting to cut McDougal open. My chance finally came at that party after McDougal set his drink down to take a phone call. He angled his body away from mine as he spoke. It gave me the 20 seconds or so I needed to spin off the top of my first vial, pour some of the clear liquid into his beer, and swirl it with my finger. I leaned against my other hand, elbow propped up on the table, the picture of nonchalance. When it became clear I had a few extra seconds to spare and that absolutely no one was paying attention to me, I went ahead and spit in it, just for fun. Hey, sorry about that, McDougal said, turning back to me. Just a friend, promise. No worries, I replied as sweetly as I could. I clinked my red cup against his. Cheers to new friends. To new friends, he echoed and swallowed the rest of his beer in one gulp. Perfect. Behind us, the front door swung open and half a dozen undergrads spilled in. Ugh, pre-meds, I scowled, taking a sip of my drink. The kindergartners have arrived, McDougal agreed. Then, it was like an idea just came to him out of the blue. You want to go somewhere a little more quiet? Well, I thought you'd never ask. McDougal's idea of someplace a little more quiet was, of course, a bedroom upstairs. Unfortunately, all of them seemed to be occupied, at least to McDougal. He was already looking a little dazed. All I had to do was jiggle the doorknobs and look at him apologetically to convince him that the rooms were locked. I could tell he was reaching inside his fading mind for an idea of where else to go, and finding that the thoughts were just a little out of reach. Don't worry, I told him, placing a steadying hand on his shoulder. I know a place we can go. By the time we reached the campus square, McDowell was swaying like a ship in a storm. I slung his arm over my shoulder to steady him. The last thing I wanted was an overly concerned campus security guard remembering us walking together. He pressed his weight into my side, his breath reeking of cheap beer with something acrid just below the surface. I struggled to get us both to the anatomy building. Door access after hours was tied to your student ID card. Good thing I still had Cassie's. Let them think a ghost did this, I thought to myself as McDougal's head lolled on his shoulders. Maybe I'll even get to start a whole new campus legend. I flicked on the light switch. The fluorescence seemed to burn McDougal's eyes. He squinted and took a couple of steps back. Where'd you bring me? He asked. Don't you recognize it? He looked around, the familiar finally clicking into place. Oh, freaky. McDougal pressed his fingers into his temples. His face had taken on a sickly dishwater color. Does he know yet, I wonder? Does he think it's fear that's making his toes tingle in his boots? Or does he realize something is terribly, terribly wrong? He looked at the metal slab in the center of the dissection room. There were no chairs. Are you feeling okay, Evan? You look a little... not well. It was hard to keep the glee out of my voice. I stepped closer to him and he stepped back. What are you... are you... he stammered. He tried to steady himself against the table, missed and toppled forward. Something's... something's wrong, he slurred. I know. It was delicious, watching how his expression changed with those two words. McDougal, ever the fighter, took a swing in my direction. I stepped to the side and pushed him, easily avoiding his fist, and he stumbled and landed perfectly, slumped over the steel slab. It took nearly a half hour for me to get his body into position. 
and then I administered the second part of my cocktail, this time with a cloth over his nose and mouth. I held the cloth in place with one hand while the other measured his pulse at his wrist. There we go, McDougal, nice and easy. I undressed him, heaving to push his flaccid torso one way and then the other as I removed his shirt and pulled off his pants. His smooth white chest, stippled with tufts of brown hair, was rising and falling almost imperceptibly now, but I knew he was still in there. I held my breath. This was it. All of my planning had come to this. How long would it take for shock to set in? I had already come to terms with never knowing for certain, but I hoped he would last as long as it took for Cassie to bleed out in the bushes. Now it was time to get to work. My phone skittered across the table. I dropped the tool I was holding. It was a text from Alyssa, my friend who I was supposed to be meeting at the party. Shit, I had run into McDougal earlier than I'd expected. Where are you? read the text. And then, Patrick said he saw you leaving with McDougal, lol. No, 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 this could not be happening. If someone saw me leaving with Evan and then he disappeared, well, that would be hard to explain. My phone buzzed again. Where are you? This isn't funny. Why'd you leave with that guy? Are you okay? I did some quick math. If everything had gone according to plan, if McDougal was indeed alive but paralyzed, I had less than an hour before its effects would wear off. And that was assuming that I had correctly calculated the difference in our weights. In reality, I knew he could wake up at any moment. I typed out a quick response. Sorry, was feeling sick so I went home. I didn't leave with anyone. Three dots appeared almost instantly. And then her reply. Be there in ten. Fuck. I could make it back to my house in less than ten minutes if I ran. I took off my heels and sprinted through the wet grass. Sharp rocks poked through the dirt like baby teeth, tearing at my bare skin. But I didn't let them slow me down. I barely had enough time to wrap myself in a comforter and smear my makeup before Melissa was there, knocking insistently and calling my name. You look rough, she said when I finally opened the door. Her eyes were slightly glazed. She looked like she'd been drinking for hours. Yeah, I told you I wasn't feeling good. I plopped down on the couch, not even bothering to offer her a drink. She walked past me into the kitchen anyways. Well, I won't stay long, but since I didn't see you at the party, I just had to tell you what Patrick said when I got there. I nodded weakly, but she wasn't even looking at me as she started her story. She was busy poking through my snack cabinet. Beneath the comforter, I inched my phone out of my pocket and pulled it through to peek at the time. It was after 4 a.m. McDougal had been under for about 30 minutes now. And then he was like, where are you going? Except he said it like, where are you going, you know? Uh-huh, I chimed in dutifully. Taking a deep breath, I stood up quickly from the couch and said, Melissa, I'm not feeling so hot. Before she could turn and look at me, I stuck a finger down my throat and threw up all over the coffee table. Melissa froze, a drink in one hand and a bag of chips in the other. Her face flushed red and she looked like she was going to gag herself. Right, I'm gonna go. She was already looking for her keys. I nodded weakly. See you in the morning for labs, I offered, my voice thick with mucus. Yeah, yeah, get some sleep, she said, closing the door behind her. I gave her two agonizing minutes to get down the block. And then I was off. Dawn was beginning to poke through the night sky as I reached the lab, sliding Cassie's ID card through the reader and pushing inside. The corridors showed some signs of waking up. 
lights on, trash bins pulled inside, but were otherwise empty. You're panicking. He's probably right where you left him, I assured myself. Still, my fingers shook as I reached for the door handle. He's probably just... McDougal was sitting straight up on the slab, staring into nothingness. When the door creaked open, his head rolled to the side and our eyes met. It was everything I could do to not scream. McDougal's face and neck were a mottled purple-blue and hugely swollen. Shining, stretched cheeks swallowed his eyes, and pink, frothing spittle poured from his cracked lips as he worked his jaw up and down, trying to speak but not being able to make a sound. I closed the door behind me and leaned against it, struggling to catch my breath. Please, lie down, you're sick, I tried, but it was of no use. At the sound of my voice, McDougal started to work his horrible mouth again, producing only a thick, hacking sound. I approached him slowly, one hand outstretched, like I was approaching a trapped animal. He tried. Shh, I said, don't try to speak, I'll I'll call someone, 911, I'll... McDougal tried to push himself upright, but his arms gave out almost instantly, and he crashed back onto the table. This only seemed to enrage him more. You! His voice echoed around the lab. I glanced back at the door reflexively. Please be quiet, I begged. I can give you something to fix it, but you have to... You! 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 He looked insane, choking and snorting from swollen nostrils like a dying boar. I took another half-step, reaching my hand slowly into my coat pocket. Strength seemed to be returning to McDougal's arms and legs and fast. He pounded limp hands against the metal table and rocked back and forth, creating a loud commotion. There could be some early bird professors in here by now or leftover cleaning crew. Anyone could be on the other side of the door listening to all of this. You, you did, you did. McDougal spat at me. A glob hit me square in the cheek. I was out of time. I lunged for him at the same time that he reached out for me and we slammed back onto the table in a twisted lover's embrace. McDougal was weak from the poison's reaction, but he summoned whatever strength he had left and slammed his swollen face into mine, colliding into my nose and sending hot streams of blood exploding outward. I bared down on him, forearms pressed into his shoulders, my blood dripping into his eyes and mouth. For a few seconds, he closed his eyes and stopped fighting back. I pulled yet another vial from my pocket. I popped the stopper out and poured the liquid onto the hem of my shirt and shoved the fabric onto his face. He lifted his head one more time, reaching a hand up towards me. But then, with the very last of his strength, he slammed his head back onto the table more violently than I ever could have managed and went still. I crawled off his body and collapsed in a heap near his feet. Blood was pooling, hot and sticky, down my chest. I looked at the clock, two hours until lab started. That wasn't enough time to do everything I had planned, clean up and get out of here before the lab started. I sat, catching my breath, trying to figure out what to do, and wound my way through every possible option. The campus was soon going to wake up. I couldn't realistically remove McDougal's body from the building, and waking him up definitely wasn't an option. I sighed. Two hours wasn't enough time to execute my plan, but it might just be enough to follow through with a new one. I had planned on missing class today, but instead I was the first to arrive for lab, already in my coat and gloves when the students poured in. Melissa arrived close to the end, looking much worse than she had in my living room a few hours ago. 
Hey, honestly, I didn't know if I would make it or if you would make it, she told me as she took her place next to the slab. I already had our cadaver set up, the face obscured with a cloth, a tarp pulled up to the torso. Yeah, it was a struggle, I said. We did our customary moment of reflection as a class and then set about the day's task. I offered Melissa the medical saw. She blinked, not sure what to do with it. She had been expecting a scalpel. I nodded and put it in her hand. Today's a craniotomy lab. Melissa positioned herself behind McDougal's still body, steadying her hand next to his skull. The first cut needed to be clean and fast, right across the crown of his head, splitting his skull wide open. I held my breath. Melissa, always an excellent student, sliced through McDougal's cranium expertly. From behind one ear, across the forehead, to the far side of the skull in one rapid move. She didn't expect the blood that gushed forth from the cadaver, blood that was bright red and vibrant, and a sign that until that moment, he had been still very much alive. Remember what they say, dear listeners, all is fair in love and war. Be careful who you cross. Nighty-night. Don't let the nightmares bite. The story you've just heard is a modern interpretation of the legend of half-hung MacDonald, a cautionary tale of capital punishment from 18th century England. The facts of that story state that in May of 1754, a Scottish soldier named Ewan MacDonald was quartered in Newcastle, where he murdered a local man during a bar fight. MacDonald was sentenced to be hanged, and under the newly passed Murder Act of 1752, he was also sentenced to be dissected for the advancement of medical science. The purpose of the Murder Act was to deter criminal behavior, as many citizens were terrified by the very idea of dissection. It makes sense, then, that this true story of crime and punishment included a gruesome twist. It is said that after MacDonald was executed and his body brought to the surgeon's hall, he made a miraculous recovery. Sitting straight up on the dissection table, MacDonald begged for mercy from the waiting surgeons until one would-be butcher struck him over the head with a mallet, rendering him dead a second time. In bringing the story of half-hung MacDonald to the present day, the story's writer, Chelsea Harfouche, swapped the gallows for a college campus, a setting that has become a lightning rod in recent years for public discourse about the failures of the criminal justice system. In the 1700s, many contemporary publications relayed the story of half-hung MacDonald as an outcry against the barbarism of the Murder Act. The modern reimagining explores the anger and exhaustion many feel with the way certain people with certain resources, people who often look like Evan McDougall, seem to be shielded from the consequences of their actions by the system itself. It's in this context that our story's main character decides to take matters into her own hands, avenging the death of her lover with a horrific act of her own. Tonight's Tale was written by Chelsea Harfouche. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lubell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. 
original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. <laughs>